Father, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you that there is not a person here that's here, you know, just by some kind of chance or that's here other than in your plan and your purpose. You have a reason, in other words, why they're here today for such a time as this. God, I believe that we have an opportunity right now to encounter you, not just to, you know, do church or check a box or fulfill some religious obligation, but to meet with the living God. And I pray in these moments that I have your word, not only would we open your words, but your word, but we would open our own hearts, open our minds, and we'd allow you to speak right into our circumstance. God, it's a mystery that you can meet a room full of all of these people packed, and you can meet every one of us uniquely right where we are. And that's what I declare this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Why don't you go ahead and take your seats. What a beautiful sense of the presence of God in worship here this morning. As Dawn said, uh, downtown Manhattan, it actually is the original. You are, you are here in the original Liberty community. And uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, you know, Andy and I, my wife and I moved uh, just over eight years ago, launched this community seven years ago last January, and by the grace of God, in those years since, not only has this community in many ways kind of birthed or given, you know, given like that pioneering spirit to uh, seven more Liberty communities, but also seven new churches as well in that time. Like what an amazing thing to think what God can do with a bunch of people that hold on to Him, keep Him at the center, keep on believing, keep on living generously and sowing seed into the nations. You just never know, do you? When you step out in faith, what God can do through us, and to Him be all the glory. The, the message this morning is simply called, It's Bigger Than Me. It's bigger than me. I, uh, Andy and I, uh, oftentimes we have a tradition on New Year's Eve, these last few years. We've got four kids, if you don't know, and so that means there's, we're never bored, let's just say that. Ah, and uh, there's never a dull moment. And so New Year's Eve, it's one of those times where our tradition is we like to kind of reflect on the year that we've had. And, uh, and we want to be prayerful about the year ahead. <clears throat> but when you've got four kids, it's like you've got to have a strategy for that because we're lucky oftentimes in the normal flow of life to finish our sentences, let alone have time for reflection. So, you know, so on New Year's Eve, we have this little habit where we switch out. One looks after the kids so the other can go pray and read and journal. And then we swap places. So uh, not last New Year's Eve, but the one before we were staying with friends out on Long Island. And they're not far from this little kind of beach and of course, it's the middle of winter, it's quiet, not too many people out. End of the afternoon, as the sun is setting, it's my turn. I go for a walk down there to pray about the year that was and just be prayerful and discerning of the year that was ahead. Now, as I was walking, I came up over a little sand dune. In fact, I think we might have a picture of what I saw. I don't know if you can make out on the screen there, but just right on the crest of that little sand dune, you can see the top of a lifeguard chair sticking up. So I, walked, I followed the path down, and actually I looked up at the chair. It looked like this from where I was standing. I think the next slide will show you what the chair kind of looked like as I was standing on the beach. And I don't know why it drew my attention in a moment of prayer, but it did. And as I was standing there on the beach and thinking about walking and praying, I felt very clearly the Holy Spirit say, come up here with me. You ever had those moments? The Holy Spirit's leading you personally and gently. I really felt drawn. It felt like a funny thing to do. There's nobody in the, in fact, there's no one around, so I guess that made it not such a funny thing to do. But I climbed up there on the chair and I sat. I watched the sun setting and the wind's blowing. I'm all rugged up, but it's kind of beautiful at sunset out there. And as, as the sun was setting, 
you know, I, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, hey, this year I want to teach you to get above it all. I started to think about what the lifeguard's chair kind of represents on that little beach. You know, because on any given day in finer weather, and especially during, you know, holidays or vacation time, that beach will be packed, and the lifeguard's job is to kind of look out for everybody, so they get above it all. They get above the noise, they get above all the distractions, they sit up there for a different view, for a different perspective. And I feel like that's what God was kind of calling me to do more and more in life. You know, any of us in the daily activities and career and family and friendship, find all the different things that are going on, we can be so in the din and the activity that we forget to come up on the chair with the Lord. Amen? And get our perspective back. And so that's, in a way, what I'm going to encourage you to do in the moments I have in this message this morning is if you'd come with me, I'd like us to go up on the chair like to kind of bring us up out of our circumstances for these moments that I have, to get above it all and to think from a different perspective about the circumstance of life, because we so easily lose perspective, don't we? Or is that just me? <laughs> I get all caught up in the content, and I lose perspective of the context. I find myself all, you know, all up in the battle, all, and I lose perspective of the war, right? I can't see the forest for the trees, as the cliche goes. And so this morning, I want to remind us that it's bigger than me. Every one of us is good for us to live our life with a revelation, particularly if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus here today. I want to live our lives with a revelation that in and through it all, it's bigger than me. I want to lead you to a passage of Scripture I was reading just weeks ago when this thought sort of started to germinate. And I was reading a little book of the Bible. I mean, it's real little. It's like two pages, a book called Titus that you could pretty easily miss if you're flicking too fast. But this, 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 this little letter, you know, epistle, a letter from the Apostle Paul is really powerful. And uh, as I was reading chapter 2, and I've read it many times before, something began to dawn on me. I've read the Bible all different ways over the years, in different translations. Sometimes I've written out whole books of the Bible to slow down and notice things. Other times I've read the whole Bible in a certain period of time, and I noticed the through lines. This was one of those times when... Reading a whole chapter in one sitting, or reading this whole book in one sitting, I mean, it's not a big ach achievement, let's be honest, two pages, but reading it at one sitting, I noticed some things that I hadn't noticed before. And I, I, wanna, I want you to, as you read this, have this thought in, your in the back of your mind, how as he speaks, he's reminding his audience, listen, it's bigger than you and it's bigger than me as we live out this life. It's in Titus chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen as well. He says this, he says, verse 1, he says, you, however must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. In the second paragraph, it says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so no one will malign the word of God. That was the first phrase that stuck out to me, the end of paragraph two. Sort of stuck out to me. And then the third paragraph says this, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what's good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech uh, that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then the third, third statement here that caught me is at the end of this next paragraph. It says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. 
to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show them they can be fully trusted so that in every way, that phrase, by the way, you're going to see three times in this passage, so that, so that, so that. It says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, I wonder as you're kind of reading that along with me what you were noticing just then. One of the obvious things to notice, I think, is the Apostle Paul is making sure everybody knows, hey, regardless of who you are, age, stage, gender, the gospel applies to you, right? I noticed that self-control makes it in all categories, <laughs> male, female, young, and old, okay? It's something we're all working on, apparently. But I like also that he tailors this a little bit. There's some special advice to the older women, for the younger women, the older men, and the younger men. He's tailoring this advice, but he's making it clear, hey, the gospel meets us wherever we're at. But it was this repeating phrase. I'm a words guy. I don't know about you. I notice phrases. And in the NIV, the translation I was reading from, I started to notice that phrase repeating, so that, so that. Every, every bit of, you know, if you, if you take this at face value, it's kind of like a lot of the epistles, a lot of the letters to the early church. Hey, here's how to live out what it means to follow Jesus in your everyday life. Just some good, straightforward living. But you go a little bit deeper and you start to realize actually what he's doing is he's elevating this conversation. For instance, after giving advice to the older women and the younger women, it says in, in verse 5, it says to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind. And listen, subject to their husbands, so that, so that, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, when I was reading that, I thought, this seems like a logical leap, doesn't it? Like one minute he's talking about how to live out your life as a godly woman, and then suddenly next thing he's saying, so that no one will malign, no one will speak badly of God's word. How did he make that connection? Well, he's reminding us that in our daily decisions, there's something higher, something higher that it's about, something higher in a sense at risk. He says the same thing in the next paragraph. He's talking to the young men about self-control and seriousness, integrity, soundness of speech. And then he says, so that, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. As I read that, I circled the word you and the word us. So easy for me to live my life thinking about the choices that I make and their consequences for me. But the Apostle Paul is speaking to the young man saying, hey, just, just realize, live differently so that those who oppose you may, may have nothing bad to say about us. In other words, my choices as a follower of Jesus don't just reflect on me. In fact, it's not just about me, it's about we. When I follow Jesus, I represent someone. I represent something bigger than myself. I represent the body of Christ. Here in the next paragraph, it even, it even gives counsel to slaves. Now, some, you might think at face value, does that mean, just side, sidebar here for a minute, detour. Does that mean that the Bible is pro-slavery? Well, I think that would be a shallow way of interpreting this, right? Just think logically about it for a second. The Bible tells us what to do when we're grieving. Does that mean the Bible is pro-death? The Bible tells us what to do when we're sick. Does that mean the Bible is pro-sickness? No, what I love about this is that what it's really saying is regardless of what season or station or age and stage of life you're in, the gospel can meet you right there. And this is what advice, he, he gives advice to the slaves. And then at the end of that paragraph, it says, so that, this is amazing, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, that's a higher cause to live for. When you're in a circumstance that none of us would wish on anybody, he elevates the conversation. He reminds them. 
Hey, you're in tough times, but remember that by the very way you live, you can make the teaching about God, our Savior, more attractive. And I guess, by extension, you can also, by the way you live, make Him less attractive. What a thought. That in our daily life and our daily choices, we might actually be causing the Word of God to be maligned. We might be bringing down the reputation of the kingdom of God, not just of ourselves. We might be making Jesus more or less attractive to the people in our world. It's bigger, it's bigger than me. I don't know if you watch any cooking shows, but we, uh, we are like borderline addicted to them at times as a family. And, you know, the whole, you know, Hulu, Netflix, binge-watching shows. And we particularly like MasterChef Junior because you get all the cooking and none of the attitude. These kids, like, cry when other kids get out. You're awesome. You know, not as much on the adult version, but we love watching that show, right? And these kids can cook like crazy. You just love them. Well, one of the things that I've noticed about cooking shows in general, having consumed quite a lot, is that uh, there's a couple of things that you, you hear a lot of. And one of them is, is that if you want to be fancy, you need to deconstruct food. Have you ever seen this? Which to me always seems like you're just spreading it out on the plate. I don't understand exactly why this is fancy. You know, if you're going to serve a burger, you better deconstruct it, right? Because that's the fancy thing to do. The other thing I've noticed is they're always talking about elevating the dish, right? Am I right? Because if you're going to serve grilled cheese to Gordon Ramsay, you better, you better elevate it, right? It better be like that... The cow that made that cheese better have listened to Beethoven or something has to have happened. I, I'm convinced that really what it's about is about being able to charge 20 bucks for grilled cheese, right? Because it's all about the fanciest and the finest. But the truth is they're trying to elevate things that are common, elevate things that are ordinary, cause us to think about a dish that's kind of whatever. In a way, it's like got our attention again. I think that's what the Apostle Paul's trying to do here. I think he's trying to elevate the everyday and the commonplace and cause us to think about what it's really about. It's kind of, you know, to me, it's reminiscent of Matthew 5. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 5, verse 13. Verse 13 to 16, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. Just pause for a second. I think we're very comfortable. If, if Jesus had made the statement, I am the light of the world, we'd all be, amen. But Jesus is saying to you and I, to ordinary people, to his disciples, hey, you just remember, you, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill that can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. Let people see that you live differently. Let your good deeds lead not to your own glory, but to the glory of God. It's a higher cause. Getting up above it all and realizing in my everyday choices it's bigger than me. You know, the truth is in, in everyday life, we can sometimes see examples of how ugly it gets when people forget it's not just about them, right? I mean, like the old movie where the best man's like, I'm the better man, right? So, and it's like, oh, that's kind of ugly on the wedding day, right, to make it all about you. But people do that in life. The sports person that's super talented, but just thinking about their own statistics or, you know, getting a good contract. And, and so they, they won't pass the ball. They're going to take the shot when somebody else has a better shot because in their own heart, they've kind of made it about them and not about the team. You know, the up-and-coming person in the company who represents a brand or an industry even, you know, who wants, you know, their God-given right to say whatever they think on social media gets the better of them and they forget, hey, I represent 
something bigger than me. I'm an ambassador. But, you know, truth be told, I find that easier to see in other people than to see in myself. It's real easy for me to say, oh, that's ugly. You're selfish. That's self-centered, right? But what about, what about me? As I allowed this sort of scripture to search my own heart, I started to realize this is not something I'm proud of. But I realized, you know, more than I care to admit, on the whole, I am the center of my own story when I want Jesus to be. When it comes to who's playing the leading role, who's it all about, who's my focus on, all too often, even after decades of following Jesus, preaching about following Jesus, I still have found it surprisingly difficult to give up the lead role in the play about me. Anybody else? Is this just me? If, look, if it's just me, it's cathartic. This is good for me this morning to get all this off my chest. But I'm hoping that this resonates with somebody out there this morning who's like, yeah, I'm kind of pretty much the center of my own story too. <laughs> Even when I pray really, like, I think they're genuinely humble prayers. Like, you know, God, have your way. You know, do whatever you want. What I realize, and this is, this is sort of another uncomfortable thing to admit this morning. It's getting real in here this morning. I hope you weren't coming for fake church because you're in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I realize that what I'm really in my heart a lot of times wishing for is if I just kind of give up whatever it is that I'm wanting, it's like my secret prayer is the minute I give it up, God's going to give it to me. Anybody else pray this? Like, I don't need that promotion, Lord. It doesn't matter. Right? And then the, the if I would just lay it down, he would give it back, or he would supersize it and give it back to me. Amen? Anybody else? Yeah. That's how I feel a lot of the times. So how, how do we break that cycle? <laughs> Felt good to admit that in a group of people here this morning. <laughs> how do we break a cycle like that? I think there's probably many answers to it, but one of them is vision. I need a vision that's bigger than me. When my vision is all about me, it's no wonder that I stay the center of my own life. But Proverbs 29, famous verse. Proverbs 29, verse 18 in the ESV says, where there is no prophetic vision... The people cast off restraints, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Vision, prophetic vision. Other translations say where there's no revelation, the people, not only just they cast off restraint, but they perish. Another translation says they dwell carelessly. How do we end up in a place where the Bible says we're perishing, dwelling carelessly, casting off all restraint? It's the lack of vision, the lack of God-given revelation. In other words, to tie it back to where we started, we all need a so that in our day-to-day that elevates the conversation, elevates what's at stake in our daily choices to remember it's bigger, it's bigger than me. You know, just recently, Andy and I went through the process of getting a new apartment. And you know, we're probably all in this room at one time or another, been through the incredibly invasive and soul-destroying process that is called getting an apartment in the city. What in the world? (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it's a big thing. We got four kids. We loved our neighborhood. They're in particular schools. So we start searching and searching. I mean, I kid you not, we went to 40 apartments in the end. Our catchment area is getting bigger and bigger. And not only did we go see 40 places, but we applied for six and got rejected. I mean, it's like, like literally it lists that morning. I see the ad. We're showing it this afternoon. We get there 20 minutes into the showing, they've got three applications already. I mean, crazy, craziness, right? So we started to get discouraged and, well, maybe, you know, maybe we're aiming too high. And I I think, you know, we weren't being crazy about what we were believing for. We just spent the last five years 
in an apartment that was one of those, we can make this work kind of apartments, right? We've all had those seasons. Maybe you're in one now where the bedroom literally fit our bed. Like that's, you know, you're lucky to not get bruises on your knees every time you get in and out of bed. That was our last place, five good years. Longest I've ever lived anywhere in my adult life, but it was clear that season was ending. I'll tell you the thing that kept us going though was in it all, we just had this feeling, it's like, you know what, God wants to do something, because our heart is, we want to have people over, but like, we had like six, seven people over in our old lounge room, and it's like, you know, like, God, I feel like there's something more to build community, to have dinner parties, to love people, and build community in our church, and we held on to that, and you know, there were times where we were ready to settle, in fact, the day we found the place we finally got, because it does have a happy ending, <laughs> was the very day we nearly gave up, and we looked at this place, and Andy's like, I wish I could say I was excited. I was like, it's probably the wise thing to do. You know, it's never good when you start telling yourself that. And we were almost ready to give up and to lay it down. And God gave us that faith to try one more time, swing for the fences, and he brought us home. And I think the thing that kept us going, I don't know what you're going through right now that you need that sustenance in, but I tell you the biggest strength for us was that I, I feel like we really had a kingdom vision for our home. In fact, I really believe even the city that I live in, people are like, why did you choose New York? Well, God sent us here. I love New York. But it wasn't a strategy. You talk to other pastors and planters, and they're reading their statistics and their demographics and doing analysis. I was like, we followed God here. I'm not saying all that stuff is wrong, but we made a decision. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, I was speaking to somebody from one of our other Liberty communities outside of New York, wrestling with a career opportunity. That would take him out of that city to another city. And he said, it's not just one step, it'd be like three steps up in my career. But he's wrestling with it. Nobody's putting any pressure on him. Everybody's holding him loosely. He's wrestling with it because he's like, I feel like I found purpose here. I feel like I finally have a church family here. I feel like I finally have a reason for being in this city. And it caused him not to make lightly a decision that would break that. I know things change, and I mean, the nature of the city is constantly, you know, people coming and going, and I think that's a part of what makes New York beautiful, but I think, what a tragedy when we sometimes don't elevate those conversations. God, what do you say? When we make it just about weather or where I could get a bigger house, which is basically anywhere, ah, right, <laughs> right? When we don't elevate the conversation about, God, what would you have, or why have you got me here, and a sense of purpose, well, then it's very difficult, isn't it, to not cast off restraint, dwell carelessly, and ultimately perish when we don't have kingdom vision. What's the key? Now, what's the key to living with a revelation that, it's, that is bigger than me, and not just live according to my wants or my comfort? You know, we were back in Australia this time last year, right about this time. We visited Australia. Of course, it's winter when it's summer here. But the winter in Sydney is very mild. And we were out walking on the streets of Sydney one day, just T-shirts and jeans. And Jesse, a couple days into it, said, wait, wait, wait. Did you say this is winter here? Like, they were born there, right? They were little. They were four, two, and one when we moved to start this church. And Jesse, who's, who's uh, 11 now, says, wait, did you say this is winter here? I said, yeah. And he says, why did we move to New York again? <laughs> I said, well... <laughs> a fair question and the short answer is not for the weather right <laughs> there's lots to love about new york city and i love it all but i was like buddy we, we moved because god had a plan and a purpose for our lives and there's not been a single day we've regretted that decision or looked backwards but it wasn't made just according to our wants our needs or our comfort it's higher so here's a couple of thoughts if you're taking notes things that help us live in light of the gospel one is humility humility you know i heard somebody say once that humility is not thinking less of myself, but it's thinking of myself less. A lot of times we imagine humility as, oh, I'm just a worm, I'm a doormat. And to be honest, I had that kind of a, I had just enough religion as a kid 
to imagine God mostly wanted bad things for me. And if I was to follow Jesus, he would send me, you know, to live in some place that I hated and marry someone I didn't like all for him, right? It's like, what an awful idea that that would all be some sort of penance and religious Jew, right? To do things that I didn't want to do. And, and I, I think oftentimes humility, instead of just thinking, you know, because here's the problem with the I'm not worthy school of thinking. Just play it out for a minute. So if you're such a worm and you're so worthless, how were you worth the blood of Jesus? If you are worth the very blood of the sinless son of the living God, then you can't tell yourself in the next breath, I'm worthless. No, you are worth everything to God. But our challenge is to recognize our value and then cast all of our crowns upon him. Humility. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. James 4.6. So humility is one. Second thing I think it takes for us is perspective. Perspective. Perspective for me is about oftentimes stepping back from what's happening in my life and seeing the through line, seeing theme and repetition, seeing what God is doing at work in my life. You know, lately I've been reflecting some on the decisions that Andy and I made when we said yes to move to New York and start this church. Of course, now this side of the blessing, it just seems so easy. Like, why wouldn't we? Of, co- of course we would. In fact, I was sitting with one of our kids yesterday who's just about to start a new school after summer's over, and they're sad about losing friendships and sort of scared about starting over again. And, and, and I reminded them, I was like, you know, when we moved to New York City, mommy and daddy, we left all of our friends, even our family behind. We didn't think anyone was coming with us. We stepped out in faith and look at all the people in our life now because we trusted God. But you need perspective to remember that, right? For me, it's like, you ever seen those Russian dolls? You know, the wooden dolls, one inside the other? For me, it's like following God is sometimes like this revelation as I look back that it wasn't just, you know, because it's long since stopped being about Paul and Andy and our yes, but inside that yes were so many others. I I ran into Serena uh, just before the service today, about to have, you know, their first child, Sean and Serena, and she reminded me I've known her since she was 12. (laughs) What a cool thing to watch, you know, her life flourishing and fall in love, marry an incredible man, a man of God who I count as a good friend of mine, having a baby, living in this sense of purpose. Who would have known all those 20-some years ago, close to 30 years ago now, right, to realize the plan and the through line of God, this perspective, helps us live for something bigger than ourselves. And I think the third thing I would say is security. I need humility, I need perspective, and I need security. I want to give you a, uh, I want to give you a working def- definition of security this morning. This would be in the Paul Andrew Dictionary. I think security is this, just try this on for size, is only wanting what only God can give me. Maybe that's where real security comes from. It's not just bravado, it's not arrogance. To me, when I follow Jesus, my security is in the place where I just want what God wants. I only want what only God can give me. To the degree that I need the affirmation of the crowd, to the degree that I need others to amen everything that I do, that makes me insecure. But to the degree that I can just hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant, or this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased, then my security is in him. If you go below all of those things, what do you find? Well, things like this. His name above my name. Or his agenda above my agenda. I start to pursue his reputation before my own. What if, what if I live my everyday life thinking, what would this do for the glory of God instead of what does this mean for me? Wouldn't I live my life so differently? 
I heard a pastor say once recently to a group of pastors just like me, he said, what if you change the scorecard of your church? What if you change how you measured success? What if you stopped making it about your seating capacity and started making it about your sending capacity? Well, isn't that a different thing? Isn't that his kingdom instead of my empire? It's a different way of living. See, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 said this, Philippians 3 verse 7, he says, Whatever were gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. That's security. That's perspective. That's humility. You know, I, I recognize that's maybe not a popular or a populist message. That's not what we're all wanting to hear. But I think it's so, so much easier for you and I to let go of control in life, or let's be honest, let go of what we really have, which is the illusion of control in life. If we know that the Father's heart is truly for us, isn't it easier to say, God, take the wheel, take the reins, take control, when I have a fundamental belief that He is for me, and that if He is for me, who can be against me? That His heart is for my good. I want to run my race with eternal perspective. I guess that's what it comes down to. So I try and sort of wrap this up for you this morning. I guess I'm, you know, I've had some wake-up moments over these last few years, and probably... You know, that one of the most stark moments was losing my mom late last year. Many of you who've been part of our church for a while saw us w- walk out that journey. And I just want to say thank you for being family and all of that. Thank you for letting it be okay to not be okay as we were grieving and walking it through and hanging on to Jesus and believing for healing and miracles and, and yet strangely, paradoxically, more passionate about healing and miracles today than I ever have been before, even as we released her into the arms of Jesus. And I remember... And toward the end, those last six weeks, I was at her bedside every day as she drew near the end of a 14-month battle with an inoperable brain tumor. And and she was, for much of the time, until the the last few days where she was at a hospice, she was at a hospital up on the uh, Upper East Side. And so I'd go every day and and, uh, be at her bedside. I remember this one particular day that was crowded and noisy on the streets. and, And actually, it turned out it was a New York City marathon that day. Streets are packed, and actually there was only a couple of places that I could cut through the traffic and the, and the race in order to get up to the hospital to see her, so it was sort of a slow process, and you know, I mean, I was in this really tender, sensitive place. Every day felt like it might be my last chance, you know, to be with her, and so I was reflective, and as I came around this corner and heard the din and the noise and saw the runners, I actually took a couple of little videos on my phone that I want to I play you right now. I wonder if you could roll that. So what you can't tell about that video is that I'm sobbing as I'm filming it. Because I realized in that moment, I was like, this is a picture of what's happening for my mom right now. She's on the home stretch, you know. And the crowds were cheering and the cowbells were going crazy. Everybody's having a good time. And then there's this guy crying, <laughs> filming the race. And it's me in this moment of like eternal perspective. 
suddenly reminded, like, what it's all about. You know, when I get so distracted, I get so caught up in things that aren't going to matter when I stand in the presence of God on that day. And I started to cry, and I just realized, you know, all of heaven, in a sense, metaphorically, is leaning over the balcony right now. Cowbell, woo, come on, Jenny, bring it home, finish strong. And she did. And just days later, we were celebrating her, honoring her. Thousands of notes and encouragement and texts and emails came from around the world. And I was reminded what it says in Hebrews 12. It's the picture of the marathon. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. By the way, there's a difference between the things that hinder and sin. Something doesn't have to be sin in your life to be a weight that holds you back from the purposes of God. It says, run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It says, for the the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I guess I want to remind you this morning that in an eternal, in a spiritual perspective, if we get up on the chair and get above it all this morning, if we would allow our spirits to be reminded it's bigger than me, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses cheering you and I on to live with purpose, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who the Bible says is not only the pioneer, but also the perfecter of our faith. Another translation says he's the author and he is the finisher, the finisher of our faith. I want every person that hears this message here today, not just to start strong, but to finish strong. And so much of it, friends, is about our vision, our purpose, and our perspective. Amen? Can I pray for you this morning? Can I have every head bowed, every eye closed across this place? Because unlike the marathon, which has a fixed length, a start and a finish mile, you and I, we don't have the luxury of knowing exactly how long this race will be. And I pray it's long, friend. I pray you got many decades in front of you. But the truth is, we all get just so many days. And then we stand before our loving Heavenly Father and we give account for our lives. And I think a lot of things that mattered an awful lot down here, or so it seemed, aren't going to matter so much in that moment up there with Him. When it all comes into crystal clear focus. Amen? My head's about and eyes are closed. I would love to pray for anyone in this place that would acknowledge your need of God here today. I'm so glad you're here. I don't know how you came to be here. Maybe you come regularly or maybe this is literally your very first time and a friend or a family member brought you. I just know it's not a coincidence that you're here. I believe God drew you here to extend to you a hand, an invitation, to invite you into a moment where you could acknowledge your sin, your need of God, ask for forgiveness, and get a second chance, the past washed away, to experience hope and love and forgiveness and grace. What a beautiful thing grace is. There's grace for you here today in Him. 
It's just my job to extend an invitation here this morning for you to connect or to reconnect with God. So our heads are bowed, eyes are closed. All across this place, if you say, Paul, would you pray for me today? I need to get right with God. I want to make my peace with Him. You know, maybe once upon a time you would have call, called yourself a follower of Jesus, but your heart and your life have strayed from Him. Today is the day to come home. If that's you, I want to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for you right where you sit. All the church right now are in prayer. They're praying for you in this moment of decision. So I want to ask you to do one simple thing as an act of faith.